excuses not to do things rather than finding excuses to do things. And I think it really comes back to that bold leadership where people say, this is our vision, this is what we're going to do, rather than just spending years and years going around and around in circles trying to work out why we can't do something. Hello everyone, this is Amit Singh Baghil. Uh, and this is Javed Asan. And together we welcome our listeners to our seventh episode dedicated to cycling and tactical urbanism. And to enlighten us on the subject, we have with us transfer planning and behavior change expert, Ms. Rachel Smith. Hello, Rachel. Hope you are doing good. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is all us and for our listeners. Ms. Rachel has about 21 years of experience in advising councils and governments in various organizations, various geographies, including Australia, New Zealand, UK, US, Germany, Dubai, Singapore, and India. Uh, she has authored three books, namely Underspent, Ready for Redundancy and Decongestion. She is the creator of Cycling Super Highways. She has been speaker on many prestigious platforms, including London's House of Lords, and has also been two times TEDx speaker. Our listeners can look up her TED Talks titled Can We Dream a New Australian Dream? And Who Says Building the Impossible is Impossible? We thank Ms. Rachel on behalf of our listeners and entire team workers for taking out time to share an immense experience with us. So Rachel, first up, we understand that you have worked in various geographies, including India. So what are your uh, views on the possibilities India holds in urban and transport planning? Oh, that's a hard one. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, I did some work in Mumbai, and so obviously uh, Mumbai is very different to somewhere like London or Sydney in Australia. But what, what India has got going for it, really, compared to other cities, is that you've got high-density high concentrations of people in your urban places in close proximity together, so absolutely perfect for... Uh, public transport, uh, bus rapid transit, you know, light rail, because you've got the volumes of people. In places like Australia and New Zealand, we put in bus rapid transit or light rail, but we don't really have the number of people to support it. And so I guess that's what you have in India, which other places don't. And it would also stop the honking because I hated the honking. <laughs> so, talking about cars, automobile sector is the biggest clientele of Indian ad industry uh, consistently for many years. Of course, the astronomical expense on advertisements by automobile sector has a financial justification. These ads push us further into the meticulous trap of continuing to be a car-oriented society. Auto industry has convinced the governments and consumers alike that car is not only a symbol of status for an individual, but high sale volume of cars also indicate prosperity of a nation. At best, it's a lie manufactured by decades of direct and indirect marketing in synergy with the media and financial institutions. Consider this, in the year 2019, India was one of the world's top 5 car markets with sale of about 3.4 million passenger vehicles. The same year, industry experts were going bonkers over weak sale figures of car industry, asking to defer the implementation of BS6 guidelines. 
and listeners may note that BS6 guidelines are focused towards vehicles using clean fuels and offer better safety for drivers and pedestrians. So Rachel, please tell us in your view, does a car represent poor life choice? And if yes, how does it affect the big picture of the city? Oh, so look, this is a really big issue everywhere in the world where the car is the symbol of status um, and people aspire to have a car. So there's lots of different kind of uh, facets to this, really. Uh, you know, I drive a really old, small car. And here in Australia, people say to me, when are you going to get a decent, which means like a better car? So, you know, in Australia, it's what car you drive, how new it is, how big it is. And so it's the same in India. It's all about aspiring to bigger, better, newer, faster things. So, and that's cultural change. Um, how do we make it different in our cities? Well, I guess we need to make sharing more convenient um, and more socially acceptable. Um, and I suppose to a certain extent, people are always aspiring to, you know, newer clothes, to the right fashion, to the right car. And people are getting themselves into debt for things that they probably don't need just to keep up or to be the same or to be better than other people. And I guess as a society around the world, we need to make sharing acceptable. So sharing cars, sharing resources and equipment. But that's a real kind of tension between that aspiring and the status and then being prepared to share things with other people. I think when it comes to cities, taking those points when it comes to cities, you know, automated uh, or driverless cars are there to, you know, be to enable sharing, but to have that kind of status as well. And I think some of the car companies um, you know, BMW, as an example, they had prestigious cars in their fleet of car sharing. So when you actually get to use or borrow or hire the best car or a car that you couldn't afford, then it's more acceptable to share. If you were going to borrow or hire a really rubbish or old car, then it's difficult to sell sharing. So there's a whole gamut of kind of cultural and social issues that we have to overcome to kind of reduce the debt, reduce the getting people into debt and to make other forms of non-car transport popular in our cities. But for, but for decades and centuries, status and aspiration has been part of all cultures, regardless really of where you live in the world. Yeah, so it's all about behaviour change. I get all cultural change and behaviour change and kind of getting rid of those social norms, those entrenched social norms about you have to have a car. Yeah, a new wave of uh, making uh, cycling provisions have been observed lately across uh, the world, including India. The effort seems uh, more focused toward 
installing small strips of cycle paths instead of exhaustive uh, cycling network. We did a small uh, story on public bike sharing scheme in uh, one of Indian cities, Ranchi, uh, where in spite of a good model, there were few, very few takers on the PBS, public bike sharing. One of the reason being mixed traffic conditions as we have in India. So please tell us in your view, how to ensure these efforts are not limited to creating awareness, but also enable mode shift in favor of non-motorized transport, especially cycle. So I would say that we need to build a proper connected network of bikeways to be able to get people to cycle. So I think that the pop-up, the kind of temporary tactical urbanism bikeways that we've seen around the world as a result of COVID are, are good. I mean, we shouldn't just be saying, well, we're just going to use cones or uh, bollards or plant pots. But I think it's really good to kind of ignite the fuse for change. So I think that when Jeanette said it can't took cars out of Times Square in New York, she did the right thing where she said, if this doesn't work or people don't like it or people don't go to the shops or they don't go to the cafes, and if all the business owners hate this, then we'll take it out and we'll just go back to normal. Um, you know, everyone knows the story where they're removing cars and putting in all the planters and the tables and chairs was a huge success. You know, businesses had more footfall. There were more people spending money, more people in the shops. And so people said, we want to keep this all of the time. So I think the temporary bikeways are a really good way to get people cycling. And then we can say, yes, there are people who want to give this a go or people who were going to cycle, but there's not the infrastructure. And then we can go in ahead and build the permanent infrastructure. In terms of people not using the, the public bike share, I mean, it goes back to that age old, you know, if there's not the infrastructure in place, then, you know, you're not going to, if you're not a confident cyclist, you're not going to ride your bike through traffic. And if you're someone who's new to cycling, you're not going to suddenly cycle surrounded by loads of cars and buses and trucks and, and whatnot. So I, I do really believe that we need to put the infrastructure in so that then we can we can cycle. You know, it's like I always say, if the supermarket or the shops or the restaurants or cafes were all full of just sugar, it would be really hard to get people to eat vegetables. But if you've got vegetables there, people eat them. So, yeah, and I think we need to think of it like that. If you want people to eat healthy, then have veg fruit and vegetables available. Correct. Very, very rightly said. Very right. Yeah, so we have been advocating cycle tracks and an empty for like talking about it for last 10, 12 years also. But many a times the queries come from our clients or even stakeholders. Uh, so they cite weather as one of the main issue with cycling or an empty in India. Uh, but for us, we see that weather extremities are there in other countries as well. May not be exactly hot weather, maybe very cold weather. So what is your response to weather as a primary reason? for low cycling trips? So when I worked in Scotland, in the UK, 
uh, I used to walk or ride my bike to work. You know, it was snowing um, or it was raining. And people just wore their wet weather gear and, you know, like the plastic raincoat and plastic rain trousers. Um, and you just changed out with them and you dried, dried them out when you got to work. In far north Queensland, in like Cairns and Townsville in Australia, it's really humid. Um, and so people say, actually, it's better to ride a bike than to walk because you've got a bit of air moving around you. But with all of this stuff, I think it's really easy to kind of latch on to an excuse. So people say, oh, the weather's not right. And then, you know, you found some... Uh, some solutions you can't change the weather you know but you can provide you know uh somewhere for people to dry their clothes or somewhere for them to change their clothes and then people will find the next excuse oh you know the topography's wrong or the gradients are wrong or there's too much traffic or you know we we just we find excuses not to do things rather than finding excuses to do things and i think it really comes back to that bold leadership where people say this is our vision this is what we're going to do rather than just spending you know years and years going around and around in circles trying to work out why we can't do something um you know in london you know with the super super highways uh they said this is what we're going to do and you know the weather's not great in in the uk you know it rains it's cold uh but they just got on and they said, this is what we're going to do and we're going to do it. And I think that's what we need to focus on. We never talk about when we're building roads, how it might rain or there might be snow or it may be too sunny. But so we, 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 have, we have rules for some modes of transport, but not for others. And we need to be consistent across all modes. If we're going to find excuses for cycling, let's find excuses for other modes of transport as well. Yes. Talking about uh, cycling superhighways, uh, please tell us something about creating uh, these cycling superhighways through plastic and how feasible do you think it is for a country like India uh, where we have uh, you know, such uh, uh, heterogeneous or mixed traffic and, and other weather conditions? Yeah, so my uh, cycling superhighways idea haven't been built yet, but I am hopeful. So I had realised, um, you know, when we build or design a road, you know, we normally have two or three lanes in either direction. And, you know, so slower people go on the outside and then you've got your overtaking lanes. And so when I was designing or thinking about them and designing them, I was thinking, well, we have, we don't, not all cyclists are exactly the same. You may have uh, children or older people who cycle a little bit slower. Then you've got your people who cycle all the time, who are pretty fast. And then you've got more people who are more kind of sporty or very fit and healthy and athletic. And they can actually go super fast. So uh, someone who's like a runner, it's always going to be faster on a bicycle than I am. And, and it might be people have got different bikes, different styles of bikes. So I thought, well, why don't we have um, lanes like we would have on a road or we would have in a swimming pool where you've got your kind of slow, medium, fast. And then we would just literally duplicate 
the road concept into cycling. So, and I thought, wow, that's a really, really cool idea. Obviously, it takes up a lot of space. So, uh, but, you know, if we change our mindset and our thinking, then they are feasible. In terms of the plastic uh, bike lanes, you know, we have lots of water courses, you know, in lots of cities um, around the around the world and you know take somewhere like Mumbai you're like a kind of on a you know you've got the coast or the sea going around that would be a great place to have you know a bike lane around the edge um, of the city and then we have all of these resources that we that we don't know what to do with so we've got plastic bottles and you know containers and plastic bags and plastic everywhere everyone's like no one wants anyone else's rubbish or trash anymore. And so everyone's trying to find ways of what do you do with it? What, where does it go? We don't want it going into the ocean. So I was like, well, why don't we take all of this plastic and the trash that we don't want and actually use that to make infrastructure? So, and I was also thinking about, you know, like Coca-Cola cans, you know, we could uh, melt them down and use those for reinforcement or whatever. So yeah, it was really not necessarily saying this is what we have to do, but it's saying let's take a problem over here and what we really need and then kind of marrying the two up to create a solution. So I am hopeful as well that one day we'll have um, a floating bikeway or lots of floating bikeways around the world made out of the rubbish that we didn't know what to do with. Yeah, we need something like that to handle also the plastic waste that we are creating. And of course, cycling is a very good way of not making more waste. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Rachel, we have been part of uh, some tactical urbanism exercise ourselves. And we, we, did, uh, we were part of a tactical urbanism exercise in Coimbatore. And then we are currently drafting a similar proposal in Lucknow also. Uh, these are two major cities in India. So though it is tactical in nature, in your views, how can tactical urbanism proposals uh, impact a city's landscape in the long term? So I think that as planners or engineers, we know and understand what the final outcome of a project is. But people in the community, in our communities, they're, they're not planners, they're not architects, they're not engineers. So we're trying to, if we're just doing something permanently, then they're not involved and they're not on the journey. And I think the tactical urbanism is a really good way to get people excited about a project, but actually for them to be part of the process. So. A lot of projects that I've done uh, with tactical urbanism, we've really included children because as adults, we can kind of manipulate the outcome. So we kind of know what we want it to be like. And so we think, oh, well, if I say this, someone will think that. Or if, we, if I say this, I can stop this happening over here. But when you get children involved, they're just like, you can't do that because of this. And you should do this because of that. So I think by getting all ages of the community involved, we can get an outcome or a project 
that the community will really use. So if we as planners and engineers just design something and plonk it somewhere, the community has had no involvement. Where if like with like a bike, a cycleway, if the community have been part of planning out how it works and you know doing the cones and the plant pots and those kind of things, they're like, oh, actually, we if we did this over here, we could do this. And what about this? And they're and and they've got ownership of the product rather than the council or the government kind of owning. Uh, the end result. So I think it's a really good way to kind of educate the community and take them on the journey about what their city and their suburbs and their neighbourhoods are about and what they want them to be. It gives people that kind of, they can really see it for themselves rather than just seeing like a visualisation or a master plan or an architect's drawing or something. I understand that by long term, we intend to not create civil works, but we are trying to instill sense of belonging and citizenship yeah. among people. So that is how yeah. it initiates a long term process. Yeah. So civil work just follows it. And actually, when I was doing the Guggenheim project in Mumbai, we did a lot of community outreach type projects, working with community groups, and they and they were saying. They actually, when we spoke to women, they were saying they wanted like little parks, like little pocket parks in like urban areas where they could go and talk to their children privately. But in New York and in Berlin, everyone was saying they wanted public spaces. You know, they wanted more being involved in the community. And in Mumbai, they wanted some private spaces. So again, it's that as planners or engineers, we can often go in and say, oh, the people want this. But when you actually go out and work with community groups or neighbourhood groups, they tell you what they really want. And that's actually sometimes quite conflicting to what we think they want. All about, you know, uh, behavioural change. Absolutely. So, uh, so there is uh, so much being said about COVID and its impact on the urban transport. One impact that we have been monitoring is a spike in car sales. So a car subscription platform has posted multiple blogs on its website, indicating how a car is a lifesaver in these times of pandemic. Fear yeah. is being sold and its effects are visible with about 20% increase in car sales in India for August 2020 in comparison to the previous year. Please uh, share your views on the impact of COVID on urban transport and how should planners or city agencies should respond to it. So I've been catching the train to and from work the whole the whole time. So so I've got a different perspective. So I you know it's all I guess about being taking personal responsibility for yourself. So obviously on the train that is social distancing people aren't sitting right next to each other but the trains are getting much busier here in australia but the traffic is horrendous so just like india people are using their car as that's seen as being safe um obviously i don't know how your public transport in india works with fair revenue and contracts and things but here 
Um, there's been in Australia, there's been something like a 80 to 90 percent fall in revenue. So that's a huge yeah. expense for governments. And no one really knows what's going to happen as a result of that. I, car sales, I think, have gone up a little bit in Australia, but not, not to the extent that they are in India. Um, so I guess, and obviously lots of people are working at home. But I noticed, and I don't know if it's the same in India, in Australia now, many, many cities are trying to get some people back, or in Sydney and Brisbane anyway, the governments are trying to get people back into offices some of the time, obviously because it has ripple effects on not just public transport, but on, you know, cafes and other services that the, the urban areas are just, there's no one there because people are working at home. So going back to your question about how do we manage with increased car ownership and more car trips on the urban on the urban form and the urban pattern post-COVID, I guess we'll just have to, well, it's taken us like 20 years to get lots of people using public transport. And I guess we're going to have to go back and just do, to be honest, I think we're going to have to do go back and do it all again, which is going to be really hard. And it will be a lot of um, alleviating people's fears There'll be a lot of like real uh, behaviour change work, but it may actually be that congestion gets so bad that people actually self-solve and go back to public transport themselves. Or people will just say it's too expensive and I'll go to public transport because it's cheaper or I'll ride my bike. So I actually think there'll be, an, uh, you know, say this was like the number of people now driving, I think. It will come down. I think people will self-solve themselves because I think it will get too hard. It's challenging time because in COVID, these uh, SOPs or standing operating procedures that have been floated uh, for various agents, public transport agencies also talks about 50% or 60% uh, occupancy. So uh, these, these are uh, you know, tough, tough on the public agencies also. Yeah, well, so, yeah it's really... It's really hard and no one knows whether this is going to last for six months, two years, six years. We've, we've got no idea. So it's not like you can really plan what you're going to do because there's just so much uncertainty. Perfect. The manufacturers, they're selling the fear of COVID and they have been selling. The, the entire car industry, I believe it, most of it is based on fear because if we if we can... Uh, look up the figures now. The the car sales have increased, and out of it, the SUV sales have seen a very huge spike. The so-called SUVs, they are not SUVs. They are not four by fours. They are just a normal four by two vehicle yeah. with a normal chassis and normal engine. But they are just built to look like SUVs, yeah. and that gives us some kind of assurity that we are safe because the fear is being served the media fuels so much of fear if i'm in a small car i'm going to die if i am i'm not in a car i'm certain to die so that kind of fear is being served so to to sell the cars and now the covid so it is benefiting car manufacturers and the financial institutions who are associated with them so the behavior change that 
uh, research that I was doing last year, which I thought actually may have been irrelevant as a result of COVID, but it is actually still relevant, is that people will change when they've got a compelling reason, a strong motive and a burning desire, which is basically when it's personal, when it's urgent, um, and when they care enough. And so what's happened with COVID and the whole fear and getting a car is that it's personal for people because they're like, this could affect me. And it's urgent because people are like, you know, the media's told me that if I go on the train or the bus, I'm going to die of COVID. And people care because obviously they don't want that to happen to them. So it's really easy for car uh, manufacturers or for finance companies to sell the car because all of those reasons why people change their behavior are relevant now. Yes. Yeah, so gaining from your experience, which city in your view has pioneered in walk and cycling infra infrastructure? What was the process of evolution? I would say the Enrique Penalosa in Colombia uh, is the kind of utopia for transformation for walking and cycling. So Enrique was the mayor, um, put in the bus rapid transit, the Transmillennia, he put in the network of bikeways. Uh, I think Bogota has, I, I'm not actually, I don't know the actual number of how many kilometers of bikeway, but you know, there's bikeway, there's separated bikeways in Bogota everywhere. There's the bus rapid transit, there's walking, facilities next to the bikeways, there are the cyclovias on Sundays where the roads are closed for walking and cycling. And also, if you have a car, you're only permitted to go into the centre of Bogota on alternate days. So like you may, you may be, your registration plate may allow you to drive your car in on like Tuesday and Thursday. And the, the bus rapid transit is affordable it's the same fares regardless of of the distance that you travel so it's not saying the people who live further away in the cheaper housing are disbenefited against the richer people who live in the middle of Bogota because the fares are, the, are, are similar or the same so it's real equity so and I guess Enrique had a plan and he executed it and I think it's that strong leadership, the kind of positive communication, and then actually getting on and delivering stuff rather than just talking about it or having loads and loads of policies and strategies that really creates change. And again, you know, obviously Copenhagen has is a different case study because they have a culture of riding bicycles there. You know, it's, it's normal for people to have a bicycle. It's not normal to have a car. It's really difficult if you've got a car to find somewhere to park it. Everyone's living in high density or typically in, in the uh, city centre, you know, in high density apartment living. So there are lots of places that have done really good stuff. But I think it really comes back to that having a clear vision and having strong leadership and then executing your plan. I think lots of cities fall or fail where they say, oh, we're going to be a livable city or we're going to be a cycling city. And then nothing happens. And then people go, oh, oh, OK. Yeah. So it's really about the execution. 
That's right. Because many things, when left in in middle, they don't yield anything. Yeah, exactly. Many, yeah, many policies, many implementation uh, uh, strategies. They start with so much of fanfare, and then they are somewhere gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I I was also uh, uh, reading through the Amsterdam story. So uh, back in I think early nine uh, 1900s, there was huge. Uh, a prore against increase in number of accidents and and that really took uh, the authorities to notice uh, these issues and then they started building into cycling network in the, in their cities and it also links back to your previous point about the tactical urbanism where if policies with a lot of fanfare and nothing happens then the community just lose interest in all of this stuff they're like Oh, there was a policy 15 years ago that said we were going to have bikeways and still nothing has happened. Where with the tactical urbanism, they might say, oh, you know, this is good. Or they might say, oh, you know, this isn't really what we want. But at least they've seen something. So I think that's where tactical urbanism also is really important, that people can see things actually happening. It might not be, you know, gold plated and it might not be perfect, but at least it's something. Yes. Yeah. Tell us something about your book, uh, Decongestion. From your learning, what are your suggestions to a normal user, the planners and, and people who implement things? Yeah, so there's kind of, and I was going to say, actually, I've got um, three chapters that I give away for free. So um, I can either send it to you and you can distribute it to your readers or people can contact me. But yeah, I do that as a gift to people. So there's really seven steps. And the first is to ignite the fuse for change, which is basically what we were talking about just now. You know, having a vision, having strong or bold leadership and having a task force or a government division that actually delivers things and things get done. The second is to communicate in a positive way. So. You know, we have a lot of don't do this, don't do that. And then people just aren't interested. We take people on the journey and we engage them and we communicate with them. And we talk about the positives, not the negatives. You know, rather than just talking about, oh, the weather's not right for cycling. If we talk about the positives, like it's actually a reliable journey time. And, you know, you don't have to go to the gym. You can ride your bike. and you're going to save money and talk about the positives, then people are more likely to change. The third one is to experiment with temporary urbanism. So, you know, have a go at temporary projects. If they fail, it doesn't actually matter. You've just given it a go and you can go somewhere else with a different idea. Uh, The fourth one is to discover what's on your doorstep. So, you know, that's all about kind of tourism or local tourism. And doing things in your own area rather than traveling further afield. And just the understanding or knowing all of the things in your neighborhood. Lots of people, um, and COVID has been a really good example where people have actually had to stay in their own neighborhoods and they've discovered things in their own neighborhood that they didn't know existed before. Uh, number five um, is to connect, enabling sharing. So, using sharing as a way to connect communities. Number six um, is to get get comfortable with the uncomfortable. 
Um, and this is all about kind of like distances and and uh, education, training, a whole raft of things there. And then number seven is to create create an infrastructure revolution. And so that's all about having really good walking and cycling infrastructure. We're never going to get people out of the car or not buying a car if what we're trying to move them to is inconvenient and difficult and hard to use. So, you know, uh, the Los Angeles Department of Transport many, many years ago said, if we want the bike to catch on, we need an infrastructure revolution. So, we, you know, if you want people to ride a bike, then build decent bike facilities. Otherwise, people aren't going to ride their bike. Yeah, that's right. We also believe that uh, if we really want to promote cycling, we must have exhaustive cycling infrastructure, exhaustive cycling network. We should yeah. be talking about networks, not just corridors. And exactly. we should, yeah, we should also be identifying who actually uh, rides the bicycle, like there are bicycling trips already going on in the city there are people who are captive bicycle users but uh, in most of the cases what we have seen we are ignoring them and we are putting bicycle lanes in areas which are more visible to us visible yeah. to a normal user and and those areas yes we see some spike in bike rides because then leisure bicycle uh, users then they come up and they use that cycling lane but what are we doing really to people who use bicycle on a daily basis we should also be thinking about them we should be creating cycling infrastructure so that they can start using the cycle lanes they can start feeling safe and then the rest of people will follow exactly and you need to i always say to people you need to have like a niche or a minimum viable target market so rather than just trying to say everyone needs to cycle choose your niche market to focus on and then you know gradually get that market bigger so a council in australia was saying to me that they had most success with bicycle take up with five-year-olds so they were going into schools and doing cycling programs for children who are five and they were like saying well that's failing and i was like no it's not that's your like niche market but most of those five-year-olds have got a mum and a dad and they've got grandparents and they've got extended family members and they've got siblings and they've got next-door neighbours and people in their community. So when that five-year-old cycles, then actually as a result of just that one person, lots of other people may be encouraged to cycle as well. So just start with one and then go one to many. Yeah rather than just trying to have campaigns or infrastructure for everyone and then achieving less or little is to focus on one demographic or one age group or one type of cyclist get lots of those people and get them to kind of spread the word or to encourage and enable others to cycle and your advice to achieve behavioral change um you need to understand people. I think we need to go out and have more conversations with people, understand their drivers, and really understand behaviour change. Because if we don't understand how and when and why people are compelled to change their transport or their urban 
living behaviours, then with all the policies and strategies in the world, then nothing is going to change. We need to find those things that are going to uh, ignite people's views for change. And that goes back to what compels people, what's personal for them, what's urgent for them and what they really care about. Thank you so much, Rachel, for your valuable insights. Uh, it was an interesting session and uh, we look forward to implementing some of your views in our own projects if we may. We also hope that this podcast may help our policymakers and implementers in some way to create an urban environment which is due for a long time now in India. Yeah. Thank you again for your time. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rachel. Thank Thank you very much. That's great. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. So that was Miss Rachel Smith enlightening us on creating walking and bicycling infrastructure for a sustainable future. Her advice to our policymakers was to exhibit a bold leadership invest in the revolutionary infrastructure that is walking and cycling, test your ideas by temporary measures such as tactical urbanism, and if they do work, don't shy away from making them permanent. As far as cycling is concerned, our cities already have substantial amount of cycling trips which go unacknowledged. So next time when you prepare your city's mobility plan, make sure you map the cycling trips to understand where cycling infra is really needed and then make provisions for the same. Moving forward, in our previous episode on parking, we invited suggestions and queries from our listeners and we received some. So now we will move to our questions and answers section and we'll read out some of the responses we received. Architect Lanit Pandey from Delhi has responded that I find your podcast to be interesting and informative but I would be happier if the length of the podcast may be reduced to 30 minutes max. Dear Lalit, Thank you for listening to the Transportation Podcast. We agree that the length of our podcast is a bit longer than acceptable length of 20 to 25 minutes. And accordingly, we are working on creating snippets wherein each full-length podcast will be squeezed into about 5 mini-episodes of 5 minutes each. A treat for the busy souls. Dr. Swapnil Jaswal from Madanpalli Institute of Technology and Science, Andhra Pradesh has asked a question regarding our last episode on parking. He queries, I understand that parking policies and management plans are being prepared for A-class and metropolitan cities. Shouldn't these policies be made for smaller cities as well? My response to this question is based on possibilities early planning holds. Imagine if we could implement a good policy early enough while a city is in making. Say when a city gets its own development authority. The question at that point of time would be about how easily we can create good habits instead of usual issues of enforcement. The acceptability will be higher among the citizens and space will be available to plan your city in a best possible manner. So my answer is yes, Dr. Jaswal, I agree with you on this. Plan early, make habits and minimize enforcement. Thank you for writing to us. Mr. Somik Das, master's student from School of Planning and Architecture New Delhi has inquired, I was listening to Professor Sarkar's podcast episode and couldn't find the link to second part. Well, thank you, Somik, for listening to the Transportation Podcast. We are equally stressed to release the second part of Sir's podcast but are stuck with some technical snag because of which it is taking a bit longer than usual. But we are hopeful that we would be able to release it shortly as a follow-up to this episode. Dear listeners, we create the Transportation Podcast on non-for-profit basis by stretching our available resources. However, a little help can go a long way to sustain this podcast and make it much more interesting and informative. Saying that, 
I request you all to consider volunteering for the podcast on a part-time basis for research and analysis required to keep it free, technical and rise above the rhetoric. You may express your willingness by sending us email at trust@theretworkhost.in with the subject volunteer for podcast. With this, we wrap this episode of the Transportation Podcast by Workhost, but the conversation can continue. Do send your suggestions or queries to us and we'll talk about it in the Q&A section of our next episode. Till then, keep walking.